right, welcome everybody. Uh, very glad that you're all with us today. Um, so wonderful to see so many faces we recognize and new faces as well. Uh, my name is Brendan Johnson and I'm a, a medical and theology student. And we've also got the whole organizing team here today on Zoom. Um, if you guys wanna just raise, raise your hand and wave maybe so we can see who that is and I'll just briefly introduce everybody. Uh, so first is Shanice Jacobs, who's a PhD student at Boston University and who's studying the intersection of theology and healthcare, uh, specifically the experiences and crisis of black maternal mortality. Then we've got Victoria Yunez Bem, who's a nutritionist and integrative health teacher. And Pfeiffer uh, Nicholson is a medical student. And Victoria Pfeiffer and I are all uh, theology, medicine, and culture fellows at Duke Divinity School. So I just want to lift up all the hard work that they've been putting in behind the scenes um, for this morning. So we welcome you all in the spirit of anticipation and joy. And it's all it's our sincerest hope that this is a, a wonderful time together as a symposium. And just to give a few short words before getting on with the program, uh, we wanted to briefly start by just acknowledging the difficulties and challenges of the past year. Everything from all of the, the death from the pandemic, um, the ongoing climate crisis and, and racial violence. In my own hometown of Minneapolis right now, the trial for George Floyd's murder is taking place these couple of weeks. And in general, we're also witnessing um, an economy and capitalism out of control where the rich are getting richer and the poor are going without protection and where uh, fewer than eight men own as much wealth as the bottom half of the world. So it's, it's been a long year and a year of, of death and isolation. Um, and yet we also know that, that absolutely nothing about the last year has not been foreseen but for those who have eyes to see. And the, the global and local injustices we see are just the fruit of a tree that's been rotten for a long time. So we're here today to take the ax to that tree and to plant some new seeds. And we're excited to be joined by panelists who are watering those seeds already. Um, so, so as I was saying, we'd first just like to lift up the cry um, of those who are suffering in the last year and those whose resistance and survival is, is the light that we're all trying to follow. And also lifting up those who are continuing to fight for justice and um, the new bonds of love, and especially those mentors and ancestors and saints who've gone before us, all of us gathered here today, and whose fight for liberation um, continues to inspire. So as the organizers, we also just wanted to tell you all a little bit about where this event came from and, and our hopes for it. Um, all of us have been folks who have been inspired by the intersection of liberation, theology, and health because it has changed the world. And I know that many of the audience members and panelists feel the same way. We've got folks here today um, from across the world who are planning to tune in from Indonesia to Haiti to Kyrgyzstan to the U.S. So I just want to express again what a joy it is to all be together. Um, we've also been simply hoping to create a space for an important conversation that doesn't um, honestly get to happen very often. Um, in the medical and global health world, religion is somewhat of a taboo topic, or when it is talked about, it feels like it can be instrumentalized or abstract or made to be kind of like a solo sport um, for the well-being of the, the healthcare worker or the patient, which doesn't really challenge the status quo. We are convinced Instead, that um, the possibility of the divine dream of liberation, um, and we believe in the possibility of truly breaking every chain. And on the other side of the coin, uh, religious groups, when they do engage in health work, unfortunately can end up repeating the same old colonial relationships or working in a way that doesn't challenge the status quo um, and continues to make some people sick and allow others to be well. So today is a conversation with folks who believe that liberation is possible and are seeking to work towards a life together where healing and abundance is for everyone. 
Each of our panelists has an incredible perspective to share, but they are also not solo heroes. And uh, we appreciate that they have led lives of accountability to communities and have led lives of accompaniment and solidarity. And they've lived passionately at this intersection of liberation theology and we're so excited to hear um, their witness today. So in conclusion, our hope for the event is to start the process of building a community and a conversation. And we look forward to everyone getting the chance to connect and build relationships and learn from the panelists and one another. And while it would be a blessing to all be in the same physical space, of course, um, that will have to come in the future. And the silver lining of this uh, kind of Zoom event is that we can have conversations truly with people who otherwise wouldn't all be able to gather today. Um, so with that, I would like to turn it over to Victoria Yunus-Bam, who's going to uh, take it from here. Thank you, and good morning or afternoon, everyone, depending on where you are. We really appreciate you being with us today, and thank you, Brendan, for that incredible introduction uh, to this event and for spearheading us and bringing this all together. Um, we really owe a debt of gratitude to Brendan for, for creating this, his, his brainchild. Um, I also have the great pleasure of introducing you all to um, Dr. Edgardo Colon Emeric of Duke Divinity School, who will be giving us a few introductory remarks. Um, Dr. Colon Emeric is the Irene and William McCutcheon Associate Professor of Reconciliation and Theology, Associate Dean for Academic Formation and Director of the Center for Reconciliation and Senior Strategist for the Hispanic House of Studies at Duke Divinity School. His work explores the intersection of Methodist and Catholic theologies and Wesleyan and Latin American experiences. Um, he's the author of award-winning books that you may be familiar with, Wesley Aquinas and Christian Perfection and Ecumenical Dialogue, and Oscar Romero's Theological Vision, Liberation and the Transfiguration of the Poor. Um, and we are so grateful for the time that he'll um, have with us um, this morning for, for a few remarks. So I will turn it over to you. Paz y bien, sea con ustedes. Peace and well-being be with you. I'm very happy to have been invited to offer some opening remarks for uh, really a remarkable uh, conference in terms of its timeliness and its topic, Healing and Liberation Theology Symposium. So, you know, healing and salvation are linked together in the biblical witness and in the biblical languages. I mean, the word salvation uh, or soteria and soter, meaning uh, salvation, healing, these things went together for early Christians uh, because of the life of Jesus, and also because of the life of Jesus, it, the promotion and building of institutions like the hospitals and other ways of caring for people in, in need. And so the topic is one that has deep roots in many traditions and in Christian tradition, as I've been speaking of, and also that has roots in the theologies of liberation. Uh, when I think of, for example, uh, Gustavo Gutierrez, I think it's not uh, insignificant that his first training, what he first started to study was medicine uh, in response to the, seeing the need, uh, the needs of this community around him, and then switched from medicine to theology. And, but that, that awareness of the, of the human being as a whole, and that salvation embraces the whole human being as one that characterized his uh, theological approach and that of many liberation theologians in Latin America and really around the world, the attention to structural sin and how inequalities uh, lead to poverty and death and that indeed poverty and early death go together. And how, for example, in places like Peru, Gutierrez would speak of how 
diseases like cholera had made a preferential option for the poor in that they were the poor people and people on the margins were much more vulnerable uh, to these diseases and that those diseases and the vulnerability of marginalized people exposed structures of sin that kept people from access to things as basic as clean water. So the topic is one that is very significant and it's significant that there is this collaboration between Duke Divinity School and the Theology, Medicine and Culture Program and Boston University uh, School of Theology. And I know that others may be joining us as well, as well, but I want to at least signal these two because uh, uh, I would want to, as a moment of personal privilege to note that Boston University's new Dean, uh, Sujin Park, is uh, one of our own, my own friend and, and colleague. And I'm so excited that she is now at, at Boston University School of Theology and as a new Dean, and in my case, as incoming Dean for Duke uh, Divinity School. And also uh, because both of those schools, uh, met the Boston University School of Theology and Duke Divinity School have roots in Methodism, uh, which is my own tradition. And, and the Methodist tradition is one that also connected very closely the care of vulnerable peoples and, and health care with uh, the mission of, uh, and the witness of, to Jesus Christ. And so, for example, you see in John Wesley, the publication of what was called then the primitive physic, which was a little manual of, of uh, healthcare and home remedies for people who did not, would not have access ordinarily to healthcare because it was too expensive. Uh, but it was a way of ministering holistically uh, to people in need. And that little manual was actually the most uh, popular, most published of all of John Wesley's treatises, more than his sermons uh, or hymn collections, interestingly enough. Uh, then also for me, uh, in a more personal manner, my connections with the Methodist Church in El Salvador, where Methodists, where people in the communities often come to the Methodist Church by first encountering the clinics, and encountering clinics uh, for people in in the margins and for and, and local ways of uh, uh, accessing low cost healthcare, but that is high quality, and that they need they that's how they first meet the witness of the church. And so for me, this the, there's a significance to this partnership in recovering. Uh, roots that this uncovering roots that are very deep but sometimes have been neglected between uh, theology health and ministry among marginalized peoples and so my hope for this uh, this time that you have together today is that it is indeed a productive dialogue uh, for gustavo gutierrez the founding question uh, for liberation theology was how do you tell a poor person god loves you when everything else around you seems to deny that rea basic reality. And he defines, one way in which he defines a poor person is by saying a poor person is someone who has to wait a week at the door of the hospital to see a doctor. And I think that my hope is that in your conversation today, engaging in what Latinx theologians call en conjunto, uh, this together in dialogue, you're able to answer Gutierrez's question uh, in a way that leads to transformative practices uh, for faith communities and for healthcare. And so I pray for blessings on your work and for a rich conversation. Thank you very much. 
Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Colon Emerick. We really appreciate your time and those wonderful words of introduction to this um, session today that we have. I'm gonna give a few logistics and then we're going to jump right in. Um, we're going to have three 50 minute panels. Um, each of those will be followed by 15 minute breakout room where you can um, actually have a chance to ask questions and engage with, with each of our panelists. Each breakout room will have one of that session's panelists and you can choose um, which one you'd like to join for conversation and questions. Um, and we also um, ask that um, you type in the chat your name and where you're from if you'd like to share that information just so we get to commune with one another as best as we can in this particular kind of setting. Hello everyone again. My name is Shanice Jacobs. I am a third year PhD student at Boston University School of Theology. I am on the Constructive Theology and Ethics track, and I am currently studying two public health crises of Black maternal mortality and morbidity, as well as anti-Asian violence and sentiments. And I am so honored that Brendan reached out to me after AAR and asked me to be a part of this amazing um, idea that he had and that we got to work together to bring it to fruition. Uh, so just to narrate a little bit, I will introduce each speaker in full disclosure. I Googled all of you very thoroughly and found your bios online. So I will read those. Um, and then I will turn it over to the first speaker. After you go, I will break very quickly to thank you for your words, introduce the next person up very briefly, and we'll go in that order after you all have shared then I will engage in a conversation with you and take any questions from the chat that may happen. So here we go. Our first speaker that I will introduce is Dr. Wylin Wilson. Professor Wilson's work lies at the intersection of religion, gender, and bioethics. Her academic interests also include rural bioethics and Black church studies. Prior to joining Duke Divinity School in 2020, she was a teaching faculty member at the Harvard Medical School Center for Bioethics and a senior fellow at the Center for the Study of World Religions at Harvard Divinity School. She has also served as visiting lecturer and research associate at the Harvard Divinity School Women's Studies and Religion Program. Professor Wilson is the former Associate Director of Education at the Tuskegee University National Center for Bioethics in Research and Healthcare, and a former faculty member in the College of Agriculture, Environment, and Nutrition Sciences at Tuskegee University, Tuskegee, Alabama. Professor Wilson served on the Mount Auburn Hospital Ethics Committee in Cambridge, Massachusetts, the advisory board for the Rural Child Hunger Summit, and as volunteer spiritual caregiver for Somerville Cambridge Elder Services in Somerville, Massachusetts. She is a member of the American Academy of Religions Bioethics and Religion Program Unit Steering Committee. Among her publications is her book, Economic Ethics and the Black Church. Second, we have Mark Jomis, who is the Deputy Chief Nursing Office at PIH and Deputy Chief Operating Officer at University Hospital at Mirbalé, Haiti. Previously, Ms. Jomis worked as the Program Manager and later the Chief of Party for Haiti Programs for the Global Health Institute at Loma Linda University. Ms. Jumis started in the nursing profession in 1998 as a licensed practical nurse. She later attended Atlantic Union College in Boston, Massachusetts for her associate degree in nursing and bachelor's in nursing, and then Loma Linda University in California for her master's in public health, specializing in disaster management and program planning. Ms. Jumis has worked in various medical services such as ER, ICU, pediatrics, NICU, and community health and non-medical services as an executive assistant office manager and board liaison. She has worked in several countries around the world providing healthcare services before returning in 2010 to her native country, Haiti, as a global health fellow. And we have Dr. Jenny Weiss-Block, who is a Dominican laywoman and practical theologian. 
She has served as chief advisor to Dr. Paul Farmer since 2009 and was his chief of staff in his role as United Nations Deputy Special Envoy under President Bill Clinton. In her current role as chief advisor, she provides strategic guidance in policy analysis and development, humanitarian disaster management, disability rights, foreign aid effectiveness, poverty reduction and global health equity, and serves as liaison with international NGOs, foundations, and philanthropists. Dr. Block has an MBA, an MA in theology, and a doctorate of ministry from Barry University. She is the author of Copious Hosting, A Theology of Access for People with Disabilities, widely considered to be a seminal text in the development of theology of disability. She has lectured widely on a variety of topics, including disability, spirituality, lay formation, Christian hospitality, social justice, and Dominican life. Dr. Block lives in Miami and New York and has three fine children and three adorable grandchildren. So I would like to first turn it over to Dr. Wilson for your presentation. Thank you so much. <laughs> All right. Hello, everyone. Uh, good morning, good afternoon, you know, depending on where we are. Uh, it is indeed a pleasure to be here. I am uh, absolutely grateful for this opportunity to come and share with you today. And I just want to um, bring you greetings on behalf of the Theology, Medicine and Culture um, Initiative at Duke Divinity School and the faculty there, um, Drs. Warren, Kinghorn and Park Curlin cannot be here, but they definitely send their regrets. And so just want to give you uh, greetings on their behalf as well. So my comments will be uh, definitely with respect to liberation theology um, for me and my work and my perspective, it comes, it's a womanist perspective. And so I'm going to start kind of with some historical roots of that and then give you a bit of a background in uh, what womanist liberation theology is. So since enslavement, Black people in America have wrestled with the existential reality of bondage and uh, white supremacy in a nation which claimed allegiance to a Christian God. And so the brutality, abuse of Black bodies, uh, the situation of powerlessness for um, Black people led to the struggles with this Christian faith that created Christ in its own image in America. And at the time, that image was an image constructed um, by white supremacy kind of ideological uh, leanings. And so in response, to this, some of the African-American scholars and theologians were actually doing a bit of wrestling and a bit of kind of constructive work. And so we get, of course, James H. Cohn, the father of um, Black liberation theology. Then we also get the likes of William R. Jones, who published a book titled, Is God a White Racist? And so you, you see there, there was a lot of tension going on and a lot of wrestling with, you know, what does it mean to be Black and to be Christian in this nation, which was basically built um, on oppression and on the backs of enslaved African-Americans, but also a nation that whose land was stolen from um, a Native American and indigenous uh, Pacific Islander um, people as well. So indeed, 
given um, this representative struggle that many African-Americans had living in this country uh, with this history of supremacy, white supremacy, enslavement, lynching, Jim Crow, um, and the continued racial violence, Black people needed a God who stood on the side of the oppressed, who stood against white supremacy and racial violence against Black bodies and who condoned this notion of Black people having power, being empowered. And this, of course, was the God of Black liberation theology articulated by James Cone. So Black liberation theology focused on the plight of oppressed Black people. However, it was devoid of an analysis of the multi-layered experience of Black women and women of color. So Black women were, of course, dealing with uh, race, gender, and class oppression. And so womanist theology uh, developed as a response to that. And it was also, of course, a response to uh, broader feminist theology as well, which um, was lacking the multi-layered um, kind of analysis of oppression. So women's theology is liberation theology and it is a theoretical and social change framework and a form of reflection that places the religious and moral perspectives of black women at the center of its methodological analysis. And so it begins an ethical analysis because with ethics, Black women can place their lives in a reflective theological context. And it was conceived in the womb of Black women's experience and therefore is not just a theoretical endeavor, it evolves from the life and witness of Black women. And its roots, of course, are in chattel slavery and in white supremacy, um, and it employs uh, the materials by and about Black foremothers as resources for contemporary reflection that provide a conscious background for God talk. So liberation is a dynamic and its goal is transformation of individuals into persons who are whole and free with a restored sense of self within womanist uh, liberation theology. And liberation is also the, the fulfillment of God's promise of wholeness through Christ. As whole persons, we are free to give of ourselves in the service of mending broken relationships and the creation of unity within and between groups that were torn asunder by the values that uphold white supremacy and patriarchy. So these relationships within society and religious institutions have been broken by domination and imbalances of power and the perpetuation of the values that shape abusive patterns of interactions that were built on these false narratives. But womanist theology, uh, liberation theology is a corrective for that. Thank you so much for those words, uh, Dr. Wilson, and for giving us an overview of the ways uh, that womanist theology is a liberation theology. Uh, now I welcome Ms. Jovis to please share with us. Oh, wow. Thank you. And I do have to apologize if you hear any background noise. Um, we're out in the field doing some visits right now. Um, I think one that I would like to share with is really um, where does religion, politics, and patience, where's that, where does that intersect? And how does that mean? What does that 
what does that mean? I think just, and I'll try to bring it together. I think I'm looking at from the patient's lens and as a believer in part of religion for the longest time, I've heard that to one extent that religion and politics should be different. And to an extent, I agree. But then let's look at the lens of politics and break that down just a little bit. What is politics? Are we talking about advocacy or are we talking about the traditional form of politics? And that's where we need to break it down. And if we excuse ourselves in the religions, religious part and say, we're just going to provide care for patients and provide medicine and go out and do this. But are we actually changing systems of oppression? Are we changing actually um, systems of structural violence? Are we actually making a longer change that is beneficial to the poor, to the marginalized communities? So I think right now where the discussion needs to take place is, are we talking about, are we trying to excuse and regulate things to politics where we actually should be talking about advocacy? And where does that advocacy begin? And where does it, how far should it go? Um, I think one thing I was, uh, I was looking at here, and there was a quote that, was, uh, that came out, and I'm sorry, I don't have from who. It said, love for the poor must, not be, pref uh, must be preferential, but not exclusive. And I think when we're talking about um, preferential option for the poor, there's an aspect of love in there. There's an aspect of we want to change a system. I don't want to be your savior or appear to be your savior and come give you medicine and come give you this. But at this point is I'm going to take care or I'm going to try to work together with you. Sorry. Um, from I'm going to work together with you and sort of take on the lens of the poor. And that's where we're coming now is for the marginalized community, get into their, you know, walk a mile in their shoes, that, that, that idea. Um, get into the communities, understand what are those oppressions? What do we need to work together? Because we might have one perception where the reality is something different. And how do we together start changing those systems? I want to go back just a little bit and, and, and sort of, and um, Dr. Weiland, you actually mentioned a little bit about or in the beginning, when I was saying like the patients coming to the hospital, or I, I believe it was when they're coming to the hospital um, and they're waiting these long lines and so forth. But let's actually ask is like, what's some of those, what are some of those reasons that they're actually coming to the hospital? What is the root of some of the illnesses that they have? Um, and how do we help address some of those things? Um, and I wanna jump forward to what has happened um, actually last year during COVID, the period of COVID. In Haiti, we had um, uh, a lot of people that were being repatriated back to Haiti. They were not being tested for COVID. Um, they, we were told, so it was not, and so at this point is, yes, we had a population health at risk. Where do we go at this point? And this is where you have to step into politics and you have to write and you have to use your voice. You have to use any means necessary to protect the people that we are here to serve and to work together with. And at that point, when some people say that you shouldn't go into politics, but that means that we're not changing the system, that we're just going from one lens and saying, okay, if you do get COVID, then you're going to try to treat you. And if you do die, I'm so sorry. Rather than saying, this is unjust, this is not fair, this is not correct. We need to go and change that and then actually stop those transfers without appropriate measures being taken to not put a whole population at risk. That's where, and we can do with more examples and I can, I can get very passionate of this, but I think that's one example that we have to separate what we call politics to what we call advocacy. And if we're talking about liberation theology right now, we, and this is my view, 
as a church or as a religion or anybody within the religious structure, we can't hide under that umbrella of saying we do not want to enter into politics because if you do, we're doing disservice to the people that we're actually supposed to be serving. Amen. I also would love to talk to you for my dissertation. This is wonderful. Thank you so much, Ms. Jumis, for your words. We very much appreciate it. Uh, Dr. Jenny Weisslock, will you please share your comments? First of all, I'm very honored to be here. And Dr. Wilson, I love your presentation, but I'm very honored, Mark, to be on a panel with you. Um, we work together and uh, I actually just, I had to take a, pic, a screenshot and send it to the Paul Farmer. So we, <laughs> who sends his regards to the group and um, uh, it's very, very nice to be here. Um, I'm a theologian uh, who works in global health and sometime if you have a long time, I can tell you how that came to be. It was not my plan, but you know, if you wanna make God laugh, tell God your plans. Um, and so I'm gonna share a little bit different perspective from uh, as a theologian um, and who has spent the last 10 years, well, actually 14 years in sort of the global health as, they, as the young people call it, space. Um, so, and, and we were sent a, uh, some questions, very broad questions that obviously you can't answer in five minutes, but um, the two questions that I kind of want to address is, well, how do you define liberation theology? And then how does it impact your work? Or, and so in terms of the definition, first, from a theological perspective, for me, liberation theology is a response to the poverty and oppression experienced by billions of people in light of the teachings of the gospel. And then from a practical or praxis perspective, liberation theology calls us to work to create a different social order. Um, again, in light of the message of the gospel. So as I like to tell my students sometimes, make no mistake or do not act out of naivete, this is a very dangerous calling. And you have to be realistic. If you're gonna enter into this, you are entering into a very dangerous in many ways. Many years ago, we had a friend a liberal, who's a liberation theology quote priest who got into a lot of trouble with the hierarchy. And, and, and Paul says to me, what would anyone have against a nice liberation theology priest? I'm like, Paul, they killed Jesus, um, you know, <laughs> for demanding a different world order. So what is it? So at the risk of being great, you know, oversimplification, I, I just have, there are four basic principles that I try to keep in the forefront when I look at liberation theology. And I was very fortunate to uh, edit a book that uh, between Gustave Gutierrez and Paul Farmer. So I had a lot of chance to really listen at length to both of them talking about this. And so what are these basic principles that I understand that I try to keep in the forefront of my own efforts and work? First of all, and it was, it's been touched on, liberation theology expands the definition of sin. And so for Christians, you know, for some reason, unfortunately, so much emphasis is on personal sins and failings, which we need to pay attention to. And a lot of it, very unfortunately, has 
got stuck in the bedroom. Um, and it really makes you look at structural sin. And it demands that we ask, what are the political and economic structures that create circumstances that keep people oppressed? And, and it is political. I'm, you know, there's, and, and the other piece of it in terms of the naivete is that we all participate in those structures and we all have access to the goods and services that make human flourishing possible. And so that first thing is, so, you know, what, what is structural sin? And what, what is it that, how do these structures keep people oppressed? The second two pieces of, which I call the A's, are action. Liberation theology is not a passive endeavor. It demands first, we look at things from the underside, from the perspective of people that are poor. And we say, why do 2 billion people a day live on less than two, two people, 2 billion people live on less than $2 a day? You know, and I always think of it when I go to Starbucks, you saw it here this morning, um, you know, I spent more today than some people live on. Um, and when, what kind of life does God intend for us humans? God intends us to have personal agency, to have human flourishing. And so again, what are those structures that keep people from that? So it, it demands a response. And Mark mentioned this and in, in our work, we call it, of course, accompaniment, but it's walking in solidarity with people who, and supporting them in joining in their own fight for emancipation. And it's what you're talking about, Dr. Wilson. It's like, and we need to be helpful, but we need to learn from them. And, they, and it's, it's their fight and we need to try to act in solidarity. And then the last piece is what I would call hope, eschatological hope in the large grand scheme of uh, what God really wants for us. And that's all of us are called in whatever way, wherever we're put to try to build the kingdom of God in the here and now. And, to, and, and that's really having that, you know, eschatological hope. I'll close with something funny because I was once with, with, um, with Paul Farmer and this man comes up to him and he goes, you're Dr. Farmer? And he goes, oh man, I thought you'd be a grumpy old man. And he said, well, why? He goes, well, I read what you wrote and it's like, you know, so strong. And he goes, but you're so, and Paul goes, I'm, I'm, I'm filled with hope, I'm optimistic. And, 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 and it's only through that eschatological hope that we can try to build the kingdom um, in the here and now. So thank you again for including me. I'm very, very honored to especially be with both of you. Thank you so much, Dr. Weisslock. I appreciate those words. And anytime we end with hope, it's very encouraging. Thank you so much. Um, I'd like to delve into a little bit of a conversation. And if anyone has questions, please put them in the chat. I'll be monitoring it to work those into um, what has been shared. But one of the things that I would like to start with is something that you all picked up on in different ways, which is the centering of bodies. Like what, what does it mean to think about uh, looking at the world from the structural underside and to center our embodiment? And oftentimes uh, it has been my experience when we're thinking about religious traditions, specifically Christianity, we want to skip over their present and our embodiment and get to this eschatological space uh, that doesn't actually take 
health seriously. It, it doesn't take advocacy seriously when we're thinking about our embodiment. And because we are in a shared space where we are clinicians and on the ground and we are theologians and we're all engaging health from different vantage points, uh, how do you respond to this need to center bodies, whether we're thinking specifically from a theological lens or from a health lens? What do you say to centering embodiment? And anyone can hop in first. I don't, I don't care how we do it. So I think what's um, most important in my work, um, I am working on a manuscript right now and uh, focus on the Black women's health crisis here in the U.S. And one of the things that is really important, one of the recommendations that I have is that Yes, we do center these bodies, but you know, what does that look if we would look like if we do this, you know, concretely, right? What does that mean to, to center these bodies? And I suggest that we may, we have to make a commitment, a commitment to bringing in not just the voices of these bodies, um, but bringing in the individuals, you know, because they are the bodies are the representatives also of the communities and you know, the families, the people that they touch, the, the, all the lives that they touch. And so bringing these women into our research spaces, um, bringing them onto our ethics committees, right? Having that voice and that body present in the ethics committee, um, bringing them into the spaces where the decisions are being made regarding the policies that will influence their well-being and the well-being and health of their communities. So, so for me, that's what's really important is making that commitment, I think is, is the first step. <laughs> I love that, Ms. Jumis, I see you pointing and nodding. Please hop in and jump on that point. <laughs> no, I, I completely agree. Um, I think I, I put it from a, just in a lens of bias, because I think if we don't bring people within that, then we are, sorry, there's a truck going by. <laughs> Um, if we don't bring people into that, we, we have to acknowledge we have our own biases. We have our conscious and our unconscious biases. And a lot of times, even when we are of that same community, we still might not be in that subgroup of that community. Right. And we have to recognize that we have our own bias. And in that point, if we don't bring people in together, you're not going to be able to formulate a we're not going to be able to really get a really good plan because it's going to be in somehow it's going to be a one-sided plan. It's going to be based on what your perceptions are, our perceptions and not be inclusive of those subgroups. Just because for instance, just because I am Haitian and I'm proud to be Haitian, I cannot say that I know the community where I'm serving. I just because that I am living in Mirbalé, I can't say that I know all the perspective of the different zones in Mirbalé or the people that are here. Mm -hmm. I think part of it when we are developing um, um, interventions or whatever when we're working with the group, it, it is if we want to be clear and very present, then it needs to be first recognizing our biases, um, recognizing that we and recognizing that we're open to understand one of our un, our unconscious biases might where they can exist and being taught that we have this somewhere. And then in that, that's because to do that, we also have to have that population, wherever that population may be, be part of it too, so that it can be in our face to recognize some of those unconscious biases that we have. And that helps change systems because if we don't change it within our own mind, then we're not, we're going to go in 
where we're advocating with another mindset yeah. that's actually not true advocacy. It's our perception of advocacy. That's so rich. Thank you. Thank you for that. Dr. Weisslock. Um, well, you know, do I need to unmute? You're I unmuted. Like unmuted. No, we can hear you. I come from the disability rights community. Uh, I didn't go to study theology till I was in my mid forties and I worked as a disability rights advocate for 20, 20, 25 years. Um, and of course, embodiment, I, as soon as I got to theology, I was very interested in the theologies of embodiment because so much of disability is related and people's perception of people with disabilities. And Dr. Wilson, they have an expression in the disability rights community. It's called nothing about us without us. And, um, and a lot of disability rights organizations, 51% of any board has to be people with disabilities who, and, and the idea that you would make decisions for other people about their own lifestyle and, and their own medical treatment. And, and I think that, and, I, and learning that has really carried me through many, uh, really an understanding because there's this big critique in liberation theology, which is correct. And it's related to this, that you're going to get your reward in heaven. So it didn't matter that, you know, you died because you didn't have access to an antibiotic that costs $5. Don't worry. You're going to get your reward later. That's in many ways, the eschatological piece of it. And again, your body doesn't matter as much. You're, I have one of my expressions is, you know, the Haitian mommies, they love their babies too. Um, and, you know, it, 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 a little bit less is good, is, is fine. And it's not. And, and that directly relates to your embodiment because it means that who you are and where you are and what your body needs doesn't matter as much as somebody else's. And you can't, in theology, they call it hierarchical dualism. And there's a huge critique of it is that the spirit is what matters and the body is, is it true? And, and, and it, you know, isn't as important. And, and, and it's very, very dangerous. And it's a major source of oppression. Uh, one of the causes of oppression is that dualism. So I think it's a very good, um, important and very good question. Thank you so much for that. And I want to pick up on, um, I want to make a connection with something that you shared, Dr. Weisbach, and something you shared, Ms. Julius. And um, you mentioned that we all have our own biases. And then, uh, Dr. Weisbach, you also brought up this point about um, this idea that liberation theology, and especially when we're thinking about health and embodiment, it is an active work. It is dangerous and it is active and we cannot be passive, but we all participate. We participate with our biases. We participate with our ignorances. And how do you continue your work of always learning? Are there particular communities that you begin with to always be reading to understand how you want to challenge yourself further in this dangerous work of liberation? Um, or do you remain on the ground? What's, what's your way for constantly learning and actively being engaged? Yeah, you know, you need to be, you can't, you have to be part of a community and you have to be with people that you trust who are willing to call you to conversion. Um, for me, hearing the gospel preached is a prime, I'm a Dominican, so preaching is really important. You know, it's the charism of our order, but 
I once was sat next to a young man on a plane. He said, well, I really don't need to go to church because, you know, I'm a spiritual person. I go, well, you're holier than me because I have to go and be part of a community and hear the gospel preached and be called to conversion because I have my own experience left to my own devices. It's not pretty. Um, And so, and, you know, I'm fortunate enough, this last year, of course, we've all been confined, but I, you know, as Mark knows, I've spent a lot of time in Haiti and in the developing world. And if you're willing to look around um, and, you know, that question is something is wrong. Um, you know, something is wrong. Uh, when, a, when a mommy says to me, will you take my baby? And I say, why would you give me your baby? And they go, I can't feed him. There's something wrong. And so, you know, the combination to me of hearing the gospel preached, being in community with people who share the same perspective. And then, and of course, I like the intellectual life and I think reading, you know, and you have people like Gustavo Gutierrez who's done both, who's had this extraordinary pastoral career as well as this, you know, very, very significant academic career. So I think the combination of those things, I mean, it's hard work, uh, you know. Um, you know, and then, you know, facing, you know, the ways you, you know, I, not you, the ways I participate in, you know, in, in the very structures that I'm critiquing. Thank you for that. Others, would you like to join in? I will say, um, for me, there are a couple of things that, that have been really important for me um, in terms of resources, you know, um, that kind of hold me to this level of accountability that's important, right? Um, so Paolo Freire is yeah. just one of my favorite, yeah. one of my favorite yeah. authors. And um, yeah, exactly. And, and so I'm, yeah. I'm always, you know, kind of revisiting uh, his, 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 his books, um, even in my teaching, you know, even if you've been at teaching for a while, um, because my teaching, I, I follow a liberationist pedagogy. So I'm, I'm trying to always, you know, kind of revisit these resources. And Bell Hooks um, is another author that I, I pull on because they deal with this liberationist pedagogy. And that's important for me um, in, in my teaching. But also, uh, I'm so glad that you mentioned this notion of community. Um, that is so important for me. I, I have a, it's an informal community. I have my own, you know, of course I go to my own congregation. So, you know, I have folks there who hold me accountable, but I have, I call it a sister circle. Yeah. And, and these are, these are women who literally are walking with me on this journey. Mm-hmm. And, and they're women that I can, you know, really just pour my heart out to. Um, they, they help me stay sane, right? Because this is hard work. It is really hard work. Um, and, and anytime you're doing work that is, you know, the, the goal is transformation, the transformation begins with you first. <laughs> so, so as I am myself um, kind of walking in this work um, and doing the work of, of transformation for myself, um, these, these sisters, the sister circle uh, is, is very important. And, and they, they ask me, you know, hard questions you know, and, and just, just that, that accountability, it's, it's, it's extremely important. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that, Dr. Wilson. Ms. Jovice, please. Yeah, I think, um, I think some of the things I would say is 
years ago, when I really first started in public health, somebody told me, and, and I've been fortunate to have these people I consider mentors throughout my life. Um, they might not know they were mentors, but they were <laughs> in my life. Um, one person told me, she said, I, this is when I was doing my, uh, I went into the community to do a community-based evaluation. And um, this community leader, she was working, she said, stop studying us and get to know us. Mm-hmm. And that floored me. And at that point, I was like, yeah, that's true. So yeah, as I, although I had my classwork I had to do, I started to, I decided, let me, let me volunteer within the community and really get to know not what we know as a food desert and all these other things, but like get to know the community and what are some of the things. And this community was literally where I live is past the, um, the highway on the other side, which is completely there. I lived in Loma Linda and then you went to San Bernardino and it's a completely different, um, um, it's completely different. I could say essentially. And throughout my career, I've been having these, um, another mentor who essentially told me again, I went into a community to work there. She said, don't do anything. Don't think, don't try to do, just live for three months. Just that's all you need to, that's your job. Mm-hmm. And, and in doing it, she said, you will get to know people and you will understand better than trying to come with a preconceived idea. So I think having people like that to tell me, stop, you're going too quickly. Um, you know, slow down. I have people also, one thing that stays in my head is be willing. And that's the thing is to be uncomfortable. And I've been fortunate to have people within joining this organization, Partners in Health, Zemina Sante, that are not scared to sort of, you know, push you to that next level and to advocate even more. And to, and so I think in that it's not being comfortable of where we are, but saying, are we doing enough what we're doing? And sometimes it gets uncomfortable because in that enough, it's not based on somebody else using their voice. Sometimes it's you having to stand up and go in and say something. So it's not like sometimes this collective group, sometimes it's that first start voice to get that collective group. So in that saying is, am I uncomfortable enough where I am to push that envelope? And am I uncomfortable enough within, and going back to the religion aspect, to push those within my community to do more? Mm-hmm. And that's part, is, that's part of the thing that I've been fortunate to have people that stand by your side and push you even more. And I think that's, that's, that's what sort of grounds me. And sometimes it, it levels you so you can be built back up again. Absolutely. For all of us starting out our careers, be uncomfortable, find mentors to tell you stop, and definitely be engaged with community. I appreciate those words. Um, We have a question in the chat, and I want to preface this by saying I am a Baptist and do not know many other like titles, so please forgive me if I get this wrong, but I believe it's Friar Jerry. I'm so sorry if that's not correct, but your question is, when does it become necessary for purposes of health and liberation for us to disengage from institutions that we are critiquing as a means of liberating? Good question. Dr. Weisbach, because you're unmuted, I'm going to ask you to okay. go first, please. Well, you know what? I don't think anybody probably, I, th- I probably think every person on this call has thought about that on more than one occasion. And it's a very ha- hard question to answer. Um, I think first you have to have some criteria um, to some standard or, you know, criteria by which to judge at what point 
you know, an institution has lost its soul, if you want to call it that. So obviously we're not hitching up with, you know, I was reading this morning, you know, a, an organization that, you know, promotes white supremacy, you know, that's clear. But, you know, you have a different role when you're on the inside. So do you work and try? Because listen, no, I mean, I think Partners in Health is the best not NGO in the world. And I think a lot of people would agree with me, but you know, you put it under a microscope, there's plenty of problems. Okay. Um, and, and, you know, as long as you're working to correct those problems, you know, that's, so there's no, there's no organization that's perfect. When do you cross over? And so do you stay inside and work for change or do you step outside and you lose, you know, in many ways, you lose, you know, your ability to critique from the outside is very, is very different. So there has to be, I think, some kind of, you know, philosophical, maybe, you know, you know, markers that would mean that you would not, you know, we, when we went to work, I went, I started to work with Dr. Farmers, we went to the United Nations, uh, when he was invited to be President Clinton's deputy uh, envoy, when President Clinton was the special envoy to Haiti. And, you know, there's a lot of criticism of the United, of the UN system. I didn't know that much about it before I went. And, but there's a lot of criticism and a lot of it is justified. But Paul made the comment, it, it was really radical to go there and try to work in the system and change it. Um, and we're still working there, trying to change you know, the, you know, from the inside. And so, you know, it, it, I think it's a very challenging and I think also a very good question, but I don't think it's easy to answer. Um, I see Dr. Wilson nodding because I think you understand kind of what I, you know, and tearing institutions down in the long run is not that, it's, it's not, in the end, I don't think that's, I don't think that's ultimately, um, really helpful because we need institutions, um, you know, to function as a society. So I'd like to hear what you all, you know, think about that. Okay, Ms. Jumis, sorry. Oh, no, I, I think it'd be difficult. And I could just tell you from my perspective, it's when I'm no longer effective or if I'm more bitter than I'm more effective, mm -hmm. it's time for me to disengage. Because yeah. sometimes it might not necessarily, and it might be the institution, it might not, but if I cannot continue to be, do what I need to do, that's where it's time for me to disengage. Because my heart is no longer there and I might cause more damage mm -hmm. to the work that's being done because of the view that I have right now. Even what, whatever the reasons I have started to get to that, where it's justified, unjustified or whatever. But when it comes to me being continued to be effective, then I know that's time for me to disengage. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I agree. Both answers are, are fantastic because um, it's true. We do, we do all kind of come at this crossroads at uh, one time or another um, with this question. And one of the things that I think about um, within this, this question is, if I weren't here, you know, if I weren't in this institution, um, you know, what issues would not be being brought forward? Mm. Um, who would not be being advocated for, you know? So, so you know, it's just, it's, 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 a, it's kind of this, this thing of looking at, you know, 
you have a role there um, within the institution. Uh, you have a commitment in that role. And, and sometimes um, our frustrations uh, can blind us to this real, you know, kind of, you gotta keep pushing, you gotta keep, stay committed um, because frustrations do really can get us off track. But, but that focus, the, the true focus on the commitment and why we're there, I think is what is, what is important when that question comes up. Thank you all so, so very much. Um, I have one other question that has come in. Um, what medical ethical issues post COVID are most critical or immediate for theological schools to address? It's a really great question. Dr. Wilson, I'd like to start with you since you are currently situated in a theological school. Um, what are your thoughts? So um, one of the issues that we're currently dealing with, particularly in our context here, so I'm situated in, in the South, right? And um, there is a um, high percentage of African-American population, um, higher than, than in other regions uh, in the US. And one of the things that has been coming up, you know, are of course health disparities, but um, with the rollout of the vaccine, another big issue of course has been this issue of mistrust and vaccine hesitancy, particularly among um, you know, minority populations. And so for me, I think a, a huge issue that has to be dealt with is this notion of, yes, health disparities, but we have to kind of pan out and go a bit broader than that and look at, say, with mistrust, for instance, it's not, it's not the, the issue that the population has this mistrust and then that's the problem. What the real, what the real problem is, there's, you know, there is untrustworthiness, this historical untrustworthiness of our healthcare institutions, of our public health institutions, of our governments. You know, so, so I think if we, I think, you know, there's, there's the need to, to, to kind of pan out a bit and, and deal with this broader scope of, of, of these, of these issues. Yeah. Absolutely. Dr. Weissflock, please, I'd like you to jump on that point. Well, you know, as I, it's just so perfect. Like, I couldn't agree with you more because the problem is that they don't want to take the vaccine. The problem is the what happened before that made them not want to. And, and believe me, people with disabilities, you know, have been, you know, as you well know from your own work. Um, you know, we're spending a lot of time right now on the, what is now being called vaccine equity, which to myself, I call it vaccine inequity, uh, because, you know, when you look at the statistics and see, you know, most of the developing world has, doesn't, you know, hasn't, you know, there's not one shot in their countries. There's a few, you know, and, and the people have been able to pay for it. And so we've been, that's what we've been working on extensively 
you know, right now. Um, plus there's another piece to it, and, and you know, Mark will know more about this and Dr. Wilson as well. You know, so many people, particularly people who, you know, don't have the same access to medical treatment, the long-term effects on their health is, you know, there'll be, as, they say there'll be as many deaths from non-COVID related things from people who weren't able to access medical treatment, you know, basic services, you know, wellness, children not getting their, you know, vaccines. So there'll be this long-term, um, you know, you know, that, that, you know, that people who have access aren't going to, aren't going to have the same outcomes. And so, um, you know, that, that, that's, I worry and think about that a lot as well, uh, you know, because there'll be those long-term, you know, mm -hmm. terrible uh, health outcomes, you know, because of not being able to, you know, access medical mm -hmm. care. The amazing thing, and, you know, and Mark and her colleagues at the hospital there, you know, have tried to keep all of the, all of the services going at the same time of responding to COVID. And, you know, it's very challenging. Um, both in finance, just financial resources, human resources, you know, you know. So, um, I mean, I think that's going to be a, a huge piece of this as well for the entire world. Thank you for that, Mr. Jones. Would you like to add? Yeah, I would like to jump off of what uh, Dr. Weissblock was saying. Really, vaccine um, inequity, <laughs> um, especially and global vaccine inequity. Yeah. If we're looking at that also and. Yeah how we're, and how are we going to um, advocate, sorry for miss overusing that word, but really to use our voices towards the, the production, the manufacturing of vaccines in other countries and helping not that, that not become a block um, because this is a global, this is a pandemic. It's not something isolated in one area. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's something that we really need to look at health, this global health and what does that really mean? And how do we start talking and shedding light and really pushing that envelope so that we can decrease those inequities that are, or eliminate to as much as we can, those inequities that are, um, that are detrimental to health. Thank you. Thank you so much for raising that and just shifting our perspectives to the fact that oftentimes theology, I this is my own critique of my own vocation, is that it is done in silos um, because we find our sub-disciplines that we're really, really excited about. And um, especially if we remain in the academy or in the church, we still remain in those silos speaking to people who for the most part agree with what we have to say. So thank you for <laughs> pulling us out of those silos so we can understand there is a global infrastructure and global structures that we need to be paying attention to and engaging in. Um, so a few things, we are at time for this conversation so that we can go into the breakout uh, rooms, but I am so grateful for your wisdom, right. for your sharing your experiences and for having a conversation with me. I also love it when I am in a space with fellow head nodders who agree with the points and we physically show it. So thank you so much 